The first reading is from Jeremiah, the 15th chapter. O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am, a call, am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. This is the word of the Lord. Our psalm for today is Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. And I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, and whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the, the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. The second reading is from Romans, the 12th chapter. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
and for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 16th chapter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned, he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the gospel of our Lord. Get behind me, Satan. That's one of the strongest and harshest things that Jesus ever said near one of his followers. Harsh. Today we heard the English uh, Standard Version. That's the version that we read on Sundays, the ESV. And again he said, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are setting your mind on the things of man. So last week in one of our Bible studies, another translation was read, and, and it's uniquely something we need to hear this morning. King James Version, it says this, But he turned, he said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me. For thou savorest not the things of God, but those of men. Savorest a hunger and a thirst and a delight in the taste of the evil things and the offense at the cross. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Let me ask you a question. Who is Jesus talking to in the lesson? Now, we're small enough of a group, we get to answer this. And if you, re- you only got a few answers to choose, so if you don't guess right, you got a pretty good chance you would guess right. So what would you say? Who is Jesus talking to when he says those words? To who? You got mask on. I can't hear you quite as well. All, all of us? Good question. A good answer. Get behind me, Satan. Who is he talking to? Satan. But he was also talking to Peter. So, so directing his words, Jesus was speaking to Satan. To Peter and all the disciples who follow the Lord, those words to Jesus, for us, they're not harsh. They might have been harsh to the evil one. Get behind me, you whatever, but, but to the disciples, he says, get behind me. Maybe they could, instead of being seen as harsh, they could be seen as one of the most beautiful displays of God's love ever. 
Yes, when he says to Satan, get behind me, he is saying, don't interfere with this. I am going to the cross. I will not stop until I get to the cross. There I will die. I will be the Islam of God atoning for their sins. And nothing you're going to do is going to tempt me away from that. So Satan, get out of my way. But to the disciples, to Peter, he says, get behind me. It's more like, get behind me. Let me go first. Let me go first until you understand the cross. Something that has confronted and convicted me this week as I've been thinking about this and about these words and how Jesus was inspired to say those words in, in, in the message we had today, Jesus spoke because of pure love for the Father. If the Father said, go to the cross, then he says, yes, Daddy, I'll go. If Jesus also spoke, though, amazing love for Peter and for all those that would follow him, saying, yes, I will go to the cross for you. God's wisdom, God's plan, God's holy will, and God's love is greater and more beautiful than our capacity to understand in most times in our life. And so out of this today, I hope and, and, and we'll pray that you will take one thing at least back home and for the rest of your lives when you hear this lesson, is that when you hear this lesson this day going forward, think of these words, that I will follow Jesus until I'm able to figure it out. I will follow Jesus until I'm able to figure it out. Now, as we continue on the message, again, review or remember a few things that was important for us last week. Last week, we remembered that the disciples affirmed that they declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Earlier in chapter 16, Jesus has led them to the city or this place of Caesarea Philippi. And we remember the historical context of that last week. There, his, that place is about as far away as they can get from Jerusalem and still be within the boundaries of what would be considered the Holy Land. They were as far away from that as possible. Another symbolic thing about Caesarea Philippi. And so while they're as far away from Jerusalem as possible, in that place, Jesus asks, he says, and who do you say that I am? Peter, the spokesperson, on behalf of all the disciples in agreement, said, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. I think they understood it as best as they could. And because of Matthew's gospel and the Holy Spirit helping us, I believe that we understand it and believe that to be true as much as we can as well. There's no other explanation if you think about it. When you, when you think that all of Jesus has been teaching and all the insight he had about the scriptures and the unlocking and the understanding of scriptures, there's no other understanding that this is the one who actually inspired the prophets to write, who worked in history with his father to make these things happen. There's no other way to think about Jesus as he's teaching. There's no other explanation for his demonstrations of power over all of creation than to say he's the son of the one who made it all. There's no other chance. There's no other explanation for his miracles, his determination to bring healing and life to all who would seek him. After all that the disciples have seen Jesus do, after all that they've heard Jesus speak and teach in the public arena over the last couple of years, there's no other answer that they could have given on that day other than to say with boldness and with some certainty that you are the Messiah of God, you're the sent one of God, and you are the son of the living God. 
now that they know who the Messiah is, they're going to be taught how he is going to continue to build his church, the church his father sent him to build. Because if you remember last week, it was one of the things we asked to remember last week is that Jesus says to us a promise. He says, I will build my church. That waits on him. It's his word. It's his promise. And he tells us, I will build my church. And he adds to that, not even the gate of death will stop the church from being built. That's a bridge into what we hear today. Jesus will build his church. He will build the people who will believe and know with certainty that he's the Messiah, son of the living God, and not even death will stop it, not in those years and not in any time following. And with that remembrance in mind, verse 21, Jesus then tells them, from, or that it's, Matthew records to us, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples. From that time on, it says, and it's good for us to pause with those, moment, those words for a moment because those words and that phrase is a real key phrase in this gospel book of Matthew. It looks on the surface that it might be an inconsequential statement, um, but it's not. From that time, that phrase. It's used in Matthew twice, and it's used to mark a transition from one time to another. It appears in the other time in Matthew's gospel in chapter 4, verse 17. And it says the same thing. From that time, Jesus began. So at verse 4, 17, what happened before that? Well, in Matthew's gospel, it begins with an announcement. Jesus is going to be born. It, begin, it tells about the angels coming, about the birth story, about shepherds. It, we learn all of this stuff in these, in these, in these chapters, 1, 2, 3 about the Magi coming, about their run, flight to Egypt to, to, to stay alive and not be killed, and then they're eventually their return and all the events in his young life. We read in these chapters about the baptism of Jesus and about then the temptation of Jesus where he'll be in the wilderness and he'll keep saying to, to the evil one, no, get behind me. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about man. You're tempting me. So all that happens in those first three chapters. And then in verse 17 of chapter 4, Jesus says, from that time, I'm going to begin to preach, and I'm going to tell the world to repent and believe that the good news, the kingdom of, is near. So in chapter 4, ch verse 17, Matthew uses that phrase to mark the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Everything before that's kind of like a historical setting and an introduction. But then from that moment on, it's his public ministry that's going to start. Today, Matthew uses the same phrase to mark the beginning of Jesus's private teaching of the disciples. So we have moved to the next section of the book, a new time and new emphasis. Jesus's ministry from this time forward is primarily private. The first part, he's, he's publicly speaking almost all the time with some hints of private instruction. From this point in chapter 16 to the end, it's almost always private with some hints of public instruction. His purpose then, from here to the end of the book, it, it's not going to be a mystery because he's going to say in verse 21, he begins to show or declare, or teach his disciples. 
He's got to prepare them. He's got to teach them because there's two things he's got to get them ready for. The first one is this. The events that they are going to experience in the next months, very few months, he has to prepare them for that. So this private teaching is getting them ready for all the events that are going to lead between then and Jerusalem and the things right after Jerusalem and the cross. But the second reason he's got to private teach them, and it's so important for him to have this one-on-one time with them in these last months, is because eventually these men, these apostles, they're going to be sent to carry on his work. He's got a little bit of time, and he's got to make it count. He's got to prepare him for what's going to happen. He's got to prepare him for the mission and ministry to come. Now, as we look at the heart of this private lesson being shared with the disciples for the first time, it doesn't seem to be a very good start. Matthew verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes, the elders, chief priests. They'll be killed, and on the third day he'll be raised. This next block of time, the next lesson, it begins with devastating news, and the disciples don't take it well. But regardless of the disciples' reaction, Jesus knows that the next chapter, it must begin. Jesus has intention and urgency as he enters this private instruction time. He will be demonstrating an uncompromised determination as he begins his long journey from Caesarea Philippi to the, the, the hill, uh, Jerusalem on the city on the hill. Daily giving them lesson after lesson, example after example, so that they will have a mountain of history with them embedded into their brains and into their consciences so that at the end, the, the Holy Spirit can come and take that mountain of rubble and form it into something that is faith, something that they can understand and they can stand on. So he's going to unload as much as he can upon them so when the day of remembrance comes, they will have something to remember and they will be able to put all the pieces together. On that day, this day that we're remembering today, the beginning of the lesson, they understand, again, that he's the Messiah. They understand that he's going to build his church. And they've heard him say that the gates of death will not hinder it, cannot stop his work. But the one thing that they're going to fail to grasp until the very end of Matthew's book is that the Messiah must suffer and die. They will fail to understand God's amazing plan of salvation that includes a cross. It's, it's near impossible for their brains to understand that the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One of God will suffer humiliation, rejection, and death. They just can't handle that. Sure, they'd seen Jesus raise Jairus' daughter. Sure, they'd seen him raise the, the dead widow's son. But if Jesus is dead... Who's going to raise Jesus? Jesus, you can't die. That's an offensive idea. No cross for you. Though at first they fail, how we started this thing off with is that they will continue to follow. Even if they fail at first, they will follow until with the Holy Spirit's help, they will figure it out. Now, failing to understand it first, Satan trying to interfere for, for humanity, finding the cross and its message offensive 
and, and saying that there is a sin and that we are to repent of the sin and that there was a Savior that needed to die to pay for our sin, that is offensive, and it continues to be offensive even today, maybe in our own lives at times. Recently, or not too recently, but I remember a story that popped in my head thinking about how cross is offensive to this world and even to me at times. There's a lady named Anne-Marie Devaney. She was a mother of a 19-year-old. She was living in a city called Lake Elsinore, California. Her 19-year-old was driving his car. He went through an intersection. There was a big accident, and he died. And she received the most horrifying, devastating news that a mother could ever hear, the news that her son had been killed in a car accident. So when the mourning process, the time to you know, fight through the struggle to thank God for the memories that she had with the son, but the questions of why, Lord, why this burden, Lord, why my son, why all these things happening, and just the, 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 the heart-wrenching loss of her son, she went to the place where the car accident was, and there in the dirt just next to the road, she took a cross, and she beat that cross and nailed it into the ground there, and there she would go, and she would pray, and there she would cry out her tears of, of just sorrow, yet her, her tears of hope that he's with the Lord, but her tears of sorrow, that she, just all of that struggle, she would be there day in and day out. That cross on the side of the road, it was offensive to a group of people, the American Humanist Association thought it was offensive that there would be a cross in a public place, that there cannot be crosses in public places. They had been fighting for years successfully, even to the Supreme Court, to remove crosses from public places across the state of California. And so on this place, in this town, they demanded that that woman's cross in remembrance of her son be removed, and they won. Her cross was removed because it was offensive to people. It's still offensive. It's offensive in China. Right now in China, in the Ahui province, Fuyang City, a church that was named called Gulu Church, this year, sometime between January and April, this year, after 124 years of existence, that church has been there, their cross on top of their church building was removed because it was offensive the national government in China was offended of those crosses, and in fact, not just that church, but over 250 other churches were removed from the landscape of China because it is offensive. The demands of God, the faith of God, the love of God displayed powerfully in a cross is offensive, and they removed it. In this country, potentially more grievous than those first two examples, leaders of churches Leaders of churches in our country are voluntarily removing crosses from their outside buildings and within their worship spaces. They are avoiding the display of the cross from their worship spaces because the cross might be considered offensive to people who might be considering Jesus. So in order to not be offensive to the ones who are seeking, they will remove that offensive cross from everything inside their church. Seeker-friendly churches, whether the mega church size, there's a, there's, I know there's a massive one in, Cal, in, in Chicago. There's another massive one that came to mind in Houston, Texas. They'll, they'll have auditoriums filled with people, and they'll have stages, and they'll call them stages, but you will not see a cross. It's because it's offensive. The cross was offensive to St. Peter. 
my Lord cannot go there. The cross was offensive to the disciples because they don't want to die. They want their will. They want their plans. They want their ideas of what the kingdom of God should be. The cross is offensive even now. Now that said, remember how the sermon time started. Started with a question, get behind our statement, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus says to Satan, don't interfere with my cross. Get behind me, Satan. He says to Peter, Peter, you need to follow me. Follow me, Peter. Let me go first. You go second until you're able to figure it out. God's wisdom, God's plan, God's holy will, God's love, it is greater and more beautiful than anything we can ever imagine. We don't know his plans. We don't know why some are born here and some are dying there. We don't understand any of it, but it's not our place to understand it. It's our place to follow him until we do understand it. Follow Jesus until you figure it out. You don't have to like it. You don't have to appreciate it. You can be fearful of it. You can be under the weight of it, but you follow him until you figure it out. In Matthew's gospel over the next months, not much time left. In the next months in his gospel, Jesus will travel towards Jerusalem. He will continue to teach. He will continue to demonstrate the will, the plan, the power of God. And he will present words and actions which they will not fully understand this side of heaven. He will present other things that with the Holy Spirit's help that will come on the day of Pentecost that they will understand this side of heaven. He will expand in their minds and their hearts the fullness of the scriptures and the beauty of God's plan in Jesus. And the suffering will no longer be a curse. The suffering will be the greatest gift of God's love ever. When the Holy Spirit comes, all of a sudden there will be a burning in their minds and their hearts. Remember on the road to Jerusalem, he says, they said, our hearts were burning inside of us as he spoke. There's an unveiling of biblical history. The lights will go on, if you will, and all of the lessons, all of this history that he's poured out upon them and for them, they will make sense. With the Holy Spirit's gifts, they will pray in spiritual blessings the prayer that Jesus taught them. Lord, thy kingdom come. Lord, thy will be done. Lord, I don't have to understand it, and I don't even have to like it, but Lord, it's your will, and it's your kingdom. And they will go boldly and intelligently and joyfully with a purpose and a passion so that everyone can know the good news of God in Christ Jesus that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of the living God, that he is the Lamb of God who came to be on that cross to take away our sins, that he willingly went to the shame and the pain of the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, and that he died, yes, but he rose. And he has prepared a place for us, and he will take us to that place. That is what they preached to the ends of the earth. God's wisdom God's plan, God's will, God's love. It's greater and more powerful than we can ever imagine. We don't even have to understand it. But on this day, we are called. We are invited, if you will, to follow Jesus until you figure it out. 
God, help us be a church that does that. Amen. Let us declare our faith. We'll use the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, who was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let us pray for the whole people of God in Christ Jesus and for all people according to their needs. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for calling us to worship you in this place. We give you thanks for your presence, for your love, for your goodness, for your mercy, and for being with us and hearing our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for the Holy Church throughout this world, and especially for all who confess your truth and way, that Christ followers would maintain their faith, that they would trust and follow you. Lord, even if we do not understand, that we would follow you until we do understand. Lord, that we would be blessed with the Holy Spirit in such a way as that we would receive your peace and display your peace to the world around us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray for our country and for all nations of the earth, that you would provide wisdom and faithfulness to leaders of government, that you would show them your will and your way and that they would be obedient and follow it. Lord, that the people that they lead would have peace and the blessings of good health and safety. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Father, we pray for those we know and love who are sick or injured. We pray for those who are going to be hospitalized or are hospitalized. Lord, we pray for those who have anxiety in their life, who manage illness, enduring chronic pain. Lord, for those who are harboring secret burdens in their hearts. Lord, that you would answer their needs, that you would still with them a piece of sense of holy healing, fortitude, and faith. Lord, we pray for those we name in our hearts now. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for sharing your loved ones with us. We ask your blessing upon those who are celebrating birthdays. Lord, we ask, give you thanks for the love that's come between husbands and wives. And Lord, we ask that you bless all marriages, especially those who are celebrating wedding anniversaries this week. Lord, if he gives you glory, watch over them. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Into your hands, O Lord, we commend all for whom we pray. We will trust in your mercy through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.